listening to Horse Racing Heroes, Episode 6, Roaring Lion. No, your ears do not deceive you. That was Matt Chapman introducing the show. Thank you very much, Matt. And welcome along, everyone, to Episode 6 of Horse Racing Heroes. The racing podcast with no betting tips, no news chat, and with every episode simply being about one great horse, or person, in racing. I'm Mark Walsh, and following on from the previous episode about Champagne Fever, we are landing the quickfire double of Lovable Greys, with this one being about the champion three-year-old and 2018 horse of the year, Roaring Lion, a horse who managed to win an incredible four Group 1s in that 2018 season. And my guest on this episode is the man who steered him to all of those big wins, two-time champion jockey, Oshin Murphy. I was lucky enough to chat to Oshin over Zoom while he was in quarantine after riding Cameco in the Breeders' Cup. So he had a bit of time to tell us all about the uh, the champion that was Roaring Lion. And uh, before we begin, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, a quick word for anyone who enjoyed that Champion Fever episode. It's worth a look at my Twitter feed for some photos sent in by Harriet Calderick, I hope I've said that right, of Champagne Fever enjoying his semi-retirement with Harriet. He's doing a bit of inv- eventing as well. And thanks also to the couple of people who subscribed to the Patreon last week. Uh, the link for that is still in the show notes, but the feedback was that a lot of people don't really know what Patreon is or ain't got time for that. So I've made a, an even simpler way for you to support the show, which is now the top link in the description and the top link on horsefacingheroes.com. So I ask that you consider supporting the show that way if you have been enjoying the series. And uh, that's enough of that for now. So please enjoy Oshin Murphy telling us all about the brilliant Roaring Lion. Okay, so Ushin, I'd like to ask you, first of all, um, to tell us a little bit about Roaring Lion's breeding and how Qatar Racing got hold of him. Roaring Lion is obviously by uh, Kittens Joy, who had some success already in Europe with the likes of Hawkbill. Uh, Roaring Lion at the sales was a very attractive kind of European type horse. Quite long limbs certainly wouldn't strike you as a dirt horse, as your typical kind of American style. Um, He's out of Viennette, who was a fairly successful race mare. Uh, you know, she was, I think, stakes placed. I never really saw the horse until Harry Bentley won uh, a maiden on him at Newmarket. We hadn't heard much about him. John Gosden isn't particularly hard on his young horses, and his gallops were, you know, fine, but they they weren't um, incredible. They didn't press any buttons before his first start, and I suppose. He shot the prominence when he won on the July course, uh, which actually, I believe, uh, was the same maiden a couple of years earlier, many years now, that Nathaniel and Frankel fought out. I think it was the exact same race, uh, which is obviously quite interesting. And then after that, they stepped up his work a little bit. And I remember he went to Kempton and that was the first time I saw him. And he just struck me as a big, gross horse, uh, still mentally very immature and kind of not sure what his job was but he obviously won by seven lengths I think that day having hung across the track I don't think it was a particularly strong race but uh, he went away from an ordinary field and obviously under a penalty uh, they don't always do that in novices so I thought he was probably okay at that stage you know Mm. and have you any idea how he got his name Uh, I don't to be honest Um, I remember Sheikh Fad kind of with most of the horses, uh, he approves the names. And then Briny, 
who is his secretary, Brownie Smith, uh, chooses which horse deserves each name. But um, but yeah, it was a fitting name for him to be honest. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. So then um, after that run at Kempton, where he did, he hung a little bit to his left. Could you tell us about that? Was that just pure inexperience? Yeah, I think he probably didn't know his job and he knew where the exit was uh, to go back into the stables and get his head down for a pick of grass and some hay or feed or something. Um, so he probably went towards the exit of, you know, you kind of come on to the track and on that left-hand corner. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he, he wanted to go home. So he's still inexperienced, but at this, what's, what's he like as a character? Um, I've seen you describe him as quite a gentleman of a horse. Yeah, uh, he would never try and nip you or bite you, which is unlike most colts. Uh, most colts at two and three are quite playful and uh, a little bit naughty, whereas he wasn't. Uh, although to ride, I remember Rab Havlin telling me, I never actually experienced myself, thank goodness. He used to get on his hind legs quite a bit, particularly walking around the the kind of trotting ring where everyone assembles at Clearhaven Stables, John Gosden's, and he climbed on the rails a few times and then just jumped straight back off the rails. So he was clever enough to know what he was doing, yet scaring everyone at the same time, um, particularly the winter between two and three. Uh, I think he got quite fresh and a little bit naughty to ride, but to handle, uh, he was really, really well behaved. And obviously he went from Kempton to the Royal Lodge at Newmarket, and he didn't start his favourite. We thought he was a nice horse, but probably a horse for next year. Uh, I remember I kind of tracked the leaders and he didn't show an electric turn of foot down into a dip. He looked like a grinder, a horse that would definitely stay a mile and a half from two to three, but he got the job done. He went a little left again, uh, you know, away from the field and again towards the exit. And uh, But he stuck his neck out and, I thought at that stage, this could be a derby horse because he looked like a horse that was going to stay a mile and a half. And obviously, we hadn't seen many kittens joys in, in Europe, but most of them stayed a mile and a half, and particularly the ones in America. So, um, so yeah, it, it, was an, it was an exciting time. So that, that was the Royal Lodge of Group 2. Um, you rightly said he wasn't favoured. It was an Aidan O'Brien hotpot. So then at that point, you realise this guy can mix it with the big, with the big guns. And he goes to what's typically a good derby trial, the uh, what was racing. then the Racing Post Trophy. And he, it's the first time he gets to start this this duel with Saxon Warrior. Yeah, so uh, we were a little bit concerned about the ground. Uh, he never galloped on slow ground, but he jumped slow and he raced lazy uh, early early on. I uh, sat back on the wing of them. I never got any cover on and he never needed it because he wasn't a free-going horse, very relaxed in his races. And uh, approaching the two, I thought, oh, let's go have a go at this race. And he hit the front, I suppose, just inside the last furlong. And then Saxon Warrior came back at him. And uh, and obviously, I should have waited and sat a little longer that day. Uh, he'd never shown that turn of foot until Doncaster. And I hadn't been galloping in much at home, so I'd never, I'd never experienced that myself. I actually don't think I ever rode him at home. Uh, in in that two-year-old season so that was pretty hard to take for me personally because obviously I left the group one behind me and um, it was very important for me at that stage to get some group ones on the board for Qatar racing Um, I don't think I'd ever ridden a group one winner for Qatar uh, in in that year and um, that was particularly frustrating but 
such was life. And obviously, uh, that was the beginning of, of a couple of duels in Saturday morning. Yeah, fantastic. So, although it's disappointing, it's exciting at the same time. You know, you've got a top class horse in your hands. So, you mentioned his winter break. Then, where where does he, where does he go for that winter break? Or he actually stayed in John Gosden's because what is difficult, you can send the fillies home and geldings and literally put them out in the paddock and feed feed them plenty. Obviously, because you want them to do well physically from two to three. But with the colts, it's very difficult to just put. Well, firstly. Uh, they get too fresh and they probably will cause themselves an injury. So you've got to keep them on the go. So he would have done a fair bit of trotting. He'd have probably trotted for a half an hour each day and done one canter up one hill. And then you pump the feed into them and just hope they don't do anything silly, really. So he comes out as a three-year-old um, in the Craven. I mean, he's, he's, he's an odds-on favourite that day, but doesn't doesn't quite get the job done. Market expectation. He got very fat, uh, very fat, very fresh. I galloped him before the Craven with an 80 rated horse that was giving his rider was probably 13 stone and me fully dressed would have been, you know, 8, 12 or 9 stone. Uh, so they were giving me a shed load of weight and uh, Roy Line literally just sat up sides and he didn't go ahead in front on the Albahadji. And we were all pulling our hair out thinking, oh, what's happened to this horse? Uh, but John Gosden wasn't too concerned and he told Sheikh Fad before the craving that he thought the horse uh, wouldn't win. He thought he was too fat and uh, and he would badly need the race. But of course, uh, you think the trainer's just being pessimistic and a horse that achieved a rating of, I think he was rated 116 at two. Um, you think, oh, there's no way he you know, won't win anyway. But it turns out it was a very hot race. Uh, Massar, who'd been in Dubai for the winter, was very fit and ready, and uh, he absolutely bolted up. So we were, we walked back into the paddock, incredibly disappointed. When you get a, a disappointing run in your first run as a three-year-old, um, does it cross your mind that maybe he just hasn't trained on? Well, as a physical, there's no way he couldn't have trained on. Um, but at the same time, you think oh, maybe this horse needs blinkers, or maybe he. You know what's happened. Uh, it's certainly a head scratcher. Um, but his work after the Craven, leading into the Guineas, was quite smart, and we actually thought he could win the Guineas. And I remember he did a bit on the line kilns, and I gave him the giddy up, like John said, "Oh, we'll go seven furlongs and literally sit him behind for the first three and just send him." Um, for the last three and then obviously we need to ease down before you get to the railings and he gave me a super feel he improved a stone and more um, from his first and second start at, at three mm, so he goes on to the guineas and he's fifth but he runs very well and in particular watching it back the race maybe didn't pan out ideally for him he was kind of on his own for the last couple of furlongs yeah I, I actually followed Massar early in the race and then Massar drifted towards the centre of the track uh, where Saxon Warrior was and I was left on my own but he also hung again to his left so um, it looked like I had raced on my own on a wing if you watch the last three frames but I actually raced with the main body of the field and had a good toe into it uh, until, until fairly late on you know he's fifth he's not he's not beaten a mile and then I would say things kind of get serious for him he goes to York for the Dante and um he seems to hit a new level that day. John was really confident leading into the Dante. I remember in the paddock, 
he couldn't see him not winning. Uh, his work had improved again, and he basically told me it didn't matter how I rode him, just don't get in traffic problems. So I followed them around and, uh, and yeah, gave him the giddy up uh, from two and a half out. And the horse was electric. And so was, was that a race where you just didn't have a moment's worry? Not really. Uh, you know, he cantered to pose through his ears pricked. He raced, relaxed, and he gave a good kick. And suddenly uh, I thought this horse could be really special, yeah. Yeah, so next step, next obvious step was the Derby. Um, massive race. How, how did yourself and the horse um, handle the occasion? Great. Uh, you know, he was the perfect, the perfect horse, temperament-wise. Uh, he never got hot before a race. He took the crowds in his stride. Uh, at the big jogging gait, which is particularly annoying and noticeable, a jockey never happened with rolling line. He walked, trot, canter, and never pick up the bridle. He was, had a great constitution. So he probably went to the start at Epsom, where he did. He went to start better than any other horse, which is the first major obstacle to overcome. Uh, he jumped fine. I was always going to ride him quietly. I followed Massar in the run. I was still on the bridle, uh, kind of around Tatnam Corner. I still sat up on him. I didn't want to press the button too soon because John never gave me instructions and he still doesn't now. Neither does Andrew for these big races because I always have a plan. Uh, and then if if it goes wrong, nobody can point fingers. That was my, you know, that's always my objective uh, that it's up to me to win on them. The job's done when they leg me up or their job, the trainer's job is done. So, um, so my idea was to sit at the back uh, unless they're going really, really slowly. Don't hit the front too soon and just give them every opportunity to win. Well, when I peeled out at the two and a half and said go, uh, it was pretty obvious within 10 strides that my horse had ran out of petrol or was about to run out of petrol because he gave me no kick. And the Dante gave a super kick and every run afterwards, he always gave a, a good, you know, he always let down and... Um, gave you know a good burst of energy uh, but at Epsom he didn't mm, I've read it I've read you say you had that feeling for a moment where you thought I'm going to win here yeah I thought I could be Walter Swimper and win at Derby at quite a young age for a few strides uh, but, um, but no it didn't happen unfortunately it didn't happen but at least you get the answer that day we're not going to 12 furlongs again. Was that definitive? Yeah, I, th- I think I didn't need to um, to even give feedback. I think we we all uh, were thinking the same between Sheikh Fad, John and David Redvers and myself. Yeah. Well, and another positive from that day is you did finish in front of Saxon Warrior, who you'd meet again next time up in the Coral Eclipse. And that's a big day for you, Qatar Racing and the horse. Yeah, uh, John didn't care how wide I was going to sit. Basically, it's a straight line when you jump out of the stalls of Sandown until the turn, and then it's only one turn. So he told me, stay out of traffic, uh, ride a patient race, and don't hit the front too soon. That was, that was kind of what we had discussed and what I was happy with before the race. Um, Aidan O'Brien had three three runners, I think, and they were always going to shield Saxon Warrior, uh, bearing in mind. 
you know, he was their great big hope for that season, particularly making him a stallion, having been a Guinness winner. So uh, it was always going to be tactically difficult, but um, I rode him confidently. I thought he was the best horse in the race. Everyone around me, you know, filled me with confidence, all, all our team, if that makes sense. And, um, and yeah, it was apparent from a furling out that he was going to run Saxon Warrior down. And he does run him down, but you end up in this in a steward's inquiry. Um, I think racing fans like we see it sometimes, but it's it's still a fascinating thing for us. Could you tell us like how was that steward's inquiry? Did Dunica put up a, a strong argument? Yeah, well, funnily enough, Dunica congratulated me pulling up. We're obviously good friends, and uh, and then of course when when you do go into an inquiry, uh, he's got to do his best to win the race, but at the same time, uh, it's not that nice winning races in, in the Stewart's room and uh, because it was te- televised as well he really had to go for it but having won a neck and visually Roaring Lion looked like the best horse on, on the day I didn't really think I could ever lose it um, so it wasn't worrying I, I would be uh, a realist when it comes to expectations and um and I, I thought it was impossible for, for us to lose the race. And that was your first Group 1 in the UK. It was Qatar Racing's first Group 1 for a couple of years. A uh, big day for everyone, really. Yeah, huge. Because the Eclipse has so much history. It's a stallion-making race as it is. And yeah, I remember speaking to Sheikh Fad. Uh, he was ecstatic after the race. It really was super thrilled. Absolutely. And then another massive Group 1 up next, uh, the Judmond International at York. The feel that day, looking back, is incredibly strong. You've King George winners, Guineas winners, St. James's Palace winners, an Irish Derby winner, a Dubai World Cup winner. And um, it's one of his most impressive performances, certainly. Yeah, he was incredible. Uh, I sat at the back. I think Thundersnow made the running under Christoph Simeon. We didn't go that fast. Ben Battle was ridden by Jim Crowley, and he's a bit keen. Uh, Poets Word was ridden by James Doyle. Um, it, was, it was always going to be tactical i didn't have any idea we were going to race stand side uh, in the straight uh i just wanted to relax follow them around and you know try not to hit the front too soon again and uh and it worked out perfectly um he jumped he never picked up the bridle uh some of the horses over raced frankie's horse the, the frankel um of the gunters without parole uh he was a bit keen, um, as was Ben Battle, we already alluded to. So it, it was really straightforward. I followed them into the straight. Um, I was still sitting on him past the three, approaching the two. I said, go, and he took off. Um, he made Group 1 horses look ordinary. And, uh, yeah, he pulled up and galloped out with his ears pricked. Uh, he was... At his very best, really. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you. There's a moment where you cruise up alongside Ben Battle, who you've had some great days on. You must know then, Jesus, <laughs> he's, he's going very well here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and Thunder Snow, who had finished second in a Group One on uh, when you're cantering alongside them at the latter stages of the race, uh, you know you're on something pretty special. Absolutely, and. It's curious, looking back at his form, his two widest margin wins in group company came at York. Do you think there was any reason he liked that track? 
Yeah, because I like that track. It's my favorite track. Left-handed, flat. Um, statistically, I'd say it's one of my best tracks. It probably wasn't this season, but I've been leading rider there uh, in the calendar year before, maybe in 2018 or 2019. Um, it, everything is perfect, in my view. Uh, it's very fair. You get a good crowd there. There's always a good atmosphere. And uh, the, the racing is of the highest level. Mm, and Roaring Lion certainly rose to the occasion. So then as a proud Irishman, you got your chance to partner him in front of your home crowd. How was that? Yeah, it was one of my best days uh, in the saddle. Uh, there was a huge amount of pressure. And I remember going over there on a, on this small plane with Porchy. Uh, nobody travelled with me um Thady Gosden came to Leopardstown but we didn't go on the same flight he went the day before so he could experience a night out in Dublin but I remember I picked up a few rides before and it was written in the stars because I'd never ridden a winner in Ireland I had hit the crossbar a couple of times I think I was second at the current twice and um you know I, I just wanted to to break my duck and uh thankfully um Willie Munns gave me a winner on Limony, I think it was, uh, in a handicap early in the day. And that took uh, a bit of pressure off. It's hard to believe, but it did, because at least then I thought I could, I can ride a winner in Ireland. And I spoke to John on the phone before the race, and he was like, oh, you know what you're doing. You've got a winner today. Just follow them around. Remember, don't get stuck in traffic. Uh, I don't mind how you ride them, but get, have one clear run at them. It was a very messy race. We lined up wide across the track. Um, I had to give away first run to Saxon Warrior. Ryan had the perfect trip. I didn't. Um, but the way he put his head down and took off, I mean, I'd love to t see what time he ran the last couple of furlongs in. I'd say it's unlikely not, it's unlikely many horses have finished as quickly at Leopardstown. Uh, the ground was very fast that day, really, really fast. But he adored that surface. You know, he's perfect physical to handle, firm, tough. And, uh, and yeah, he, he made up ground on Saxon Warrior and ran him down. And uh, that was unbelievable. I just remember thinking, uh, as a child, I used to watch the news RT news and you know this would be a headline and uh, for those of my family who don't really follow racing or they might see this incredible horse on the news tonight <laughs> uh, that was a good feeling absolutely yeah. and I was I remember I was there that day and when the two in Saxon Warrior and Roaring Lion kind of pulled clear and get into that battle the crowd was loving it. I think it was the first and second favorite in the race it was just can, can you sense that atmosphere even even while you're riding that finish yeah, yeah, it was mad. It's actually such a great weekend. Obviously, we haven't experienced it this year, uh, unfortunately, but uh, they they have the Curra and Leopardstown on the same weekend. They've built it as Irish Champions Weekend, and it really is. There's so many group ones, so many good horses. Uh, there's been some top-class winners of the Irish Champions Stakes in the past. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Um, I didn't actually get a chance to... Um, soak it all up much because I was riding in Canada the next day and we had to rush to get the small plane back uh, from Dublin to Oxford because I had an 8am flight to to, um, to Canada the next day. But I remember walking through and uh, so many well-wishers and um, 
yeah, I'd like to, I'd love to win an Irish Champion Stakes again and stay in, stay the night in, in Dublin. And how did you get on in Canada? No, they didn't win. It was a waste of a trip, unfortunately. The race is sponsored by Kipco as well, which I'm sure sweetens it a little bit. Yeah, and Sheikh Fad and Melissa were there, uh, which uh, Sheikh Fad wasn't at the Coral Eclipse, and um, and he was at York for Judmon International. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, it was huge, huge. And my family were there. My my father was there, my mother and sisters, everyone was there. So um, it was very special. Fantastic. And just finally on that race, it was the last time you met with Saxon Warrior. Do you think those two kind of helped each other's popularity? Because those battles, there was there were some incredible duels up the straight. Yeah, it it um, it became fascinating and really helped draw the public in. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was super that those two horses were were um, were able to captivate the imagination of so many people, and certainly with their pedigrees as well. Uh, Saxon Warriors by Deep Impact, which we hadn't seen many in Europe, and Rolling Line by Kitten's Joy, we hadn't seen many of them, but there is no doubt that Kitten's Joy is the leading turf sire in America, and Deep Impact is the greatest sire we've seen in Japan. Unfortunately, he's passed away, but um, yeah. Fantastic. His final run then in the UK was the QE2, uh, dropping back to a mile for the first time since the Guineas. So what, what was the thinking there for going for that race? Uh, on slow ground, Rolling Line wouldn't really relish 10 furlongs and uh, and also to uh, appeal to breeders it would be important that he won a group one over a mile so uh, it was the obvious race and uh, Sheikh Fad and his brothers were there I think he, Sheikh Fad's mum came as well um, so there was a huge amount of pressure uh, they don't go racing every day and obviously Kipco sponsored the meeting uh, Sheikh Fad is in Obviously, has a couple of boxes for that meeting, but um, would obviously be watching the race with the Queen. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. <laughs> Probably, I I was able to hide it, uh, but I don't think anyone else was. And um, and I, I was given no instructions uh, because I knew him so well. At this stage. We had an excuse ready because the only way the horse couldn't win on ratings was the ground and it was very slow. So uh, I just tried to nurse him into the race and um, uh, probably never admitted to myself, but really really and truly, I didn't, I was able to nurse him into it and uh, I only hit the front in the last 100 metres. He really stuck his head out. There was some fantastic photos uh, taken because obviously we raced on the far side uh, we didn't go that quickly and um, and yeah he 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 stuck his head out and put his ears back and uh, yeah really grounded out yeah he did grind it out and I know you're a modest man so you, but I would say it's probably one of your best if not your best ride on him because he's in front where it matters and not for very long before or after, because the I can fly is finishing fast. Would you kind of would you agree with me there? That was one of your your finer moments on him. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, and actually, when you think about it, it's the first race ever he didn't gallop out uh, fast. If that makes sense, he literally walked after the line. Uh, he was a tired horse, and um, yeah, he he was he was there when we needed him for a few strides. Yeah.
Uh, his final run then, it was quite a, a sporting decision for Connections to go for the Breeders' Cup Classic on dirt. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was uh, probably a commercial decision because if, if Rowan Lyon uh, could win a Group 1 on dirt, his stud fee would be 100000 in his first year instead of 40000 um, so, uh, and particularly when you're about, to, he was always going to be retired that season, uh, having won four group ones on the bounds. Um, particularly when you're going to stand a horse, you need to make the best decisions commercially. And he came out of Ascot fine. Um, he was going to freshen up. Uh, we couldn't give him a gallop at Subtle like they did. Galileo previously um, because there wasn't enough time, if that makes sense. So we didn't have any idea whether he would handle dirt or not. Um, I remember going over there. I, I rode him one morning. Frankie rode him one morning. Frankie was supposed to tell me to come and gallop him or have a sit on him but give him a canter. And he never told me because he wanted to ride him himself. That's how weird he is. Um <laughs> He wanted to ride the best three-year-old of that year himself in a canter. Uh, bearing in mind, he knew he was never going to ride him in a race, but just so he could say he's ridden him. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, John Gosson thought I just didn't bother pitching up and Frankie made himself available. But actually, uh, I didn't know I was supposed to pitch up. Um, anyway, I hurried about it and I, I rode him the next morning. Um, and... He felt well. Uh, he cantered around in that dirt absolutely fine. Uh, such a light mover. He was always going to feel fine on it. But when the stalls opened, and we did some gate practice with him as well, just to get him used to a bell rings, um, just to get him used to all that. And he jumped super fast. Uh, I gave him a proper dig out. Um, when I say that, like we gave him a good hurry up just to try and sharpen him. And he jumped probably quicker than he ever jumped in his life, but he got sandwiched uh, between two horses, which is typical dirt racing. Uh, it's quite aggressive, and these horses are really tough. It's much more um, gruesome than turf racing. You go very fast, and they don't, you know, the race goes from fast to slow. But he got sandwiched, and his race was over uh, into the first turn, really. He got kicked back in his face, and... Uh, He'd never experienced that before, and I practically pulled him up. And um, yeah, I remember getting off him in disgust because that was going to be the last time I was ever going to sit in his back. And uh, and obviously, I knew we wouldn't be replacing him. It's impossible to replace horse like that. So um, yeah, it was it was hard to take at a young age, but, but such is life. Such is life indeed. But he he was straight off to stud then in Tween Hills. Yeah, I went to see him uh, every opportunity I could uh, when he arrived back. Yeah. And he had a, su- a successful first season at stud there, is that right? Yeah, he covered about 140 mares. Uh, or he probably covered 160, but I'd say 140 ended up falling down, if that makes sense, which is a really high number. Uh, he's incredibly fertile and he, he took to it like a duck to water. Uh, he was really popular with with, um, with breeders. I think he covered 10 uh, either individual group one winners or group one producers, uh, which was 
pretty amazing for a first season sorry so then he was shuttled down to New Zealand I believe and well we don't want to dwell on um things going wrong I think it's, we, we'd better touch on it could you tell us a bit about what what happened down there yeah um he traveled down fine uh got off the box um they put him out in the paddock which is perfectly normal uh to have a walk around and a leg stretch and after half an hour or so he looked uncomfortable so I think he was stood in the corner. He wasn't walking around, and uh, his. So what they do is um, the first distress signals are uh, they a horse will lie down and get up, and they try to um, basically relieve themselves of that um, of that compression in the in the in their intestine. So uh, he was trying to kind of kick himself with his hind leg in the belly. Um, so immediately uh, the vets were called and they walked him around and just tried to get everything moving. Uh, you give a horse probably 12 hours uh, of like monitoring and walking them around and you try and flush their system out, basically. Um, and he wasn't improving. So uh, the decision was taken to perform a surgery on him uh, to relieve that issue. And... Uh, and that all just seemed seemed to go fine. Um, horses had colic surgery all the time. Um, you know, Camelot's had colic surgery, and he he was fine after it. Um, so that seemed to go okay. And uh, recovering from that surgery, um, he took a turn, um, and things started to go wrong again. So he had to go under the knife for the second time, and. When that happens, um, you do get quite distressed because it's fine opening horse up once, but when you have to do it twice, uh, it's worrying. And uh, they moved, they removed a lot of his insides. Um, they removed a, all the damaged tissue and stitched it back up, and everything looked fine again. And about 48 hours later, um, I remember getting the videos. They they were very kind. The guys down there, the vets and all the staff, he, he basically had 10 people at his side uh, all the time because the horse is valued at such a high price. And obviously, Sheikh Fag wanted to do everything he possibly could to keep him alive, even if um, he was, wasn't going to have a stud career uh, again. Um, so they removed about 40 feet of intestine, which sounds like it's impossible, but a horse has approximately 90 feet of, of intestine uh, in their belly. And uh, and it all looked hopeful. And then he took a turn again. And um, he, he, I remember the last video, he, he, you know, it was obvious that, um, that he was going to have to go to sleep. Mm. Very sad. And I, I remember watching video. David Redverse was went went down there and was trying to was looking after him and was updating everyone. And it was kind of just just a horrible time for the whole team. But to look on the positive side, he does have a crop of foals, as you said. Um, have you heard anything about how they're coming along? Yeah, I've seen a lot. Of, I've seen many of them. We have about forty of them, uh, homebreds at Tweenhills, and then obviously there's another. There's another hundred odd, definitely ninety plus, um, scattered around everywhere else. 
there's a lot of them are chestnut, but they'll go grey. Uh, he was actually chestnut himself as a forward. So, um, so yeah, he's stamped them. Uh, we've no idea if they can gallop or not. They can certainly walk. A lot of them, are, you know, would strike you as possible racehorses. Um, so let's say he's he was given a great chance to be successful, and it would be great even if he just had one uh, colt that could kind of do something similar to him, uh, particularly if he that horse raced in Qatar racing colours. So, yeah, be, it'll be really interesting. It will captivate the imagination if there was one star, because I think it'd be good not only for um, the racing public, but also for Sheikh Fahd and his brothers. So, um, so yeah, let's see what happens. Absolutely. Certainly do a bit of look on that front. Um, just for you personally, to get a horse like that, I, I think you were 22 and 23 when you were riding them, racking up those group one group ones. Uh, that's something you, you couldn't really dream of that. No, you can't. Uh, I I probably didn't appreciate it enough at the time. Um, I knew I was riding a, a world-class horse and I knew they don't come around all the time, but I didn't... Uh, enjoy those big days as much as I probably should have. And then it's when the horse uh, isn't still racing that you think, goodness me, uh, or you see the photos or when someone asks you a question, uh, I'm actually looking at a statue of him now. Um, that's when you you realise how good, how good a horse he was, yeah. And he, he could have raced at four and won everything again, you know, he... He was um, for us that had a lot of racing in that three-year-old season, and actually for an immature two-year-old, he didn't miss a beat either. Uh, he he was very sound, um, the perfect athlete, really. Absolutely, and is that something you took on board then with Cameco this season? Could you kind of soak in the enjoyment of those days a bit more? Yeah, exactly. I I every I basically I've galloped Cameco every week. Uh, all season and I've enjoyed every single morning and I knew getting off him uh, in America the other day that would be the last time I sit on him so um, so yeah it was uh, it's I learned to enjoy it for sure sure and same with Ben Battle now you know every time I gallop him in the morning I appreciate it because you know, these horses are irreplaceable really and just finally Oshin, are there any other stories you could tell us about them like little quirks he had or things that happened on days you rode him? Yeah, um, he would canter to the start every single time with his ears pricked on a loopy rein. And, uh, and no horse does that on race day. And neigh at the other horses. I remember at Leopardstown, he, he literally thought he was there for a pick of grass uh, going to post. He, he was neighing at the other horses. And I remember giving him a slap down the shoulder to wake up and he laughed at me but then he'd go in the stalls and start to concentrate um and actually funnily enough chemical uh, gets a little bit hotter but he uh, is of a similar constitution so i think that says a lot of their sire um you know how many horses do i ride a year and they're the only ones that would handle a big day like that uh, you can imagine the crowds that growing line um you know, encountered on those big race days and he never turned a hair, which is pretty special. And Kieran O'Neill and Rap Havlin would tell you, uh, he climbed on timber railings. So he'd go on his hind legs, climb on top of a timber railing 
and then climb off it without scratching himself. You can imagine the worry that would give everyone who watched it. I, thankfully, I never saw it or was on his back from when he did that because I would panicked. Um, but yeah, he 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 knew exactly what he was doing. He was a proper playboy. Yeah, he's a character and smart enough fellow then by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, how he didn't cut himself, I don't know, you know, or, or did himself any damage because a normal horse who climbs on a railing uh, will will do some damage themselves, but he didn't. So it was a strange one. Well, Sheen, thanks so much for your time. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed hearing all about him. No problem at all, Mac. More than welcome. Thanks very much, Oshin. Cheers, Mac. Well, there we are. Thank you very much to Oshin Murphy for being so generous with his time and generous with his insight about Roaring Lion. As sad as it was to hear about, I learned an awful lot from the part about the horse having colic, so I hope you might have learned something from the episode too. And if you enjoy the show, please do subscribe, tell a friend, share on social media, all that stuff. And you might even consider the virtual equivalent of buying me a pint via the link in the show notes. Um, It really is very quick and simple. There's no app, no signing up or anything. It'll take you less time than it would to wait for an actual pint of Guinness to settle at the bar. And uh, it'll be hugely appreciated and help me to continue to make more episodes, which I would really like to do. Um, And, you know, I mean, Sheikh Fahad, if, if you're listening, it is possible to increase the amount of the donation on there. Or, you know, how about, hear me out, the Horse Racing Heroes podcast, brought to you by Kipco, hosted by Mark Walsh in his new fur coat. I'm open to offers, is that's all I'm going to say. Uh, next week's episode is with one of the great characters in UK and Irish racing, Brendan Duke. I promise you, he's an amazing man to listen to. Um, the episode is quite emotional at times. Uh, you do not want to miss it, so do please tune in next Wednesday for it. And now, the music commentary ending. You are about to hear the commentary of Roaring Lions' last two Group 1 wins. So that's the Irish Champion Stakes at Leopardstown and the QE2 over a mile at Ascot when Oshin was feeling all that pressure. The song is called Yes, I Am A Long Way From Home by Mogwai, and I hope you like it. So thank you for listening. See you after. Around the home turn with two and a half to go. Doveville would want from the race, challenging Saxon Warrior. Roaring line on the outside of Verbal Dexterity. They're followed by Athena, Study of Man and Rhododendron. But Saxon Warrior's gone for home, racing towards the final furlong and has stretched on a couple of lengths in front. Roaring line's been after him on the outside. They're racing now towards the finish. And it's Saxon Warrior, Roaring Line, the arch rival. Roaring line gets up to win it. Roaring London, Oshin Murphy, stars of the season, have run down Saxon Warrior.